Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, and welcome to the fifth lecture in a series of six entitled For Courtesan, Queen and Gallant, the guitar in England from Henry VIII to Samuel Pepys. I do hope, by the way, that you may be able to join me for the very last lecture in the series, which is in May, not only because it has a wonderful subject, which is the diarist Samuel Pepys and his involvement with the guitar, which went quite some way, but also because it will, in fact, be my last lecture, my 24th lecture as Gresham Professor of Music. I've done four years, and that will be the last one, so I shall be in festive mood. And it will be... <laughs> but also, of course, full of regret. Um, and just before I start and introduce the musicians, I'd like to pay tribute to, to Gresham College for the support it's given and for giving me this opportunity, but also to thank, perhaps a little prematurely, because there's still one lecture to go, a sound engineer, James Bull, who has taken on more and more charges as we've gone, uh, for example, to live streaming. So a welcome to you and a welcome to the internet audience. But I really would like to pay tribute to James, who's been extraordinary um, all the time that I've, I've worked with him, right from the start, in fact. Anyway, let me just introduce the uh, two musicians who are going to be playing for us. They are Taro Takerchi and Ulrich Wedermeyer. <clears throat> <clears throat> Now, perhaps you know the wide stretch of beach at Deal in Kent. But even if you don't, you can easily imagine, I think, the scene in late spring 1660 on that broad beach. Sailors and servants are unloading the baggage of King Charles II, who's returned for the restoration of the monarchy after quite some time of penury and exile abroad. Everything is bustle and confusion on the beach. And amidst it all, to anticipate a little bit my last lecture, is Samuel Pepys. He's very flattered to be there, of course, because he's a very minor official at this time. He's not the great man of the Navy that he was going to, to become. And he's really only there, I think, because he's got a very distinguished cousin, a rather distant cousin at that, the Earl of Sandwich, who's one of the magnates who sailed over to bring Charles back from the Low Countries and has taken Pepys with him. Pepys, of course, was an eyewitness to the return, to the King's return, and that part of his diary makes wonderful reading, not least the part where he notices that the King's dog does its business in the middle of the ship, reminding him, as Pepys says, that the Kings are as other men, presumably because King's dogs are as other dogs. Anyway, Pepys, for all that he's flattered to be there, is very frustrated and annoyed, and the reason is He's been entrusted with a particularly annoying piece of luggage, which at one point he very nearly loses. It is Charles II's personal guitar. Well, those of you who heard my last lecture in the series will remember that I produced with a great fanfare, because I was very pleased to find it in the archives at uh, Dorchester in, in Dorset, a reference in Charles's uh, personal accounts just before 60, uh, his return, showing that he bought a guitar, possibly that very guitar that Pepys nearly lost, and some tennis rackets in Paris a few months before his return, and had them sent on to Brussels, where he was staying. I suspect to Charles, a guitar was really much like a tennis racket, and not just because, of course, it's similar sort of shape and strong with gut, but because it's a sportive, pleasant sort of thing to do for half an hour, and then you get on to something more consequential. Well, Charles, as I, as I said earlier, had spent much of his exile in places uh, where he'd been quite poor, but nonetheless, places where the guitar was widely cultivated notably the, the French court, for example, and indeed the homes of some very wealthy merchants and burghers in the Low Countries, where he spent a good deal of time. But Charles Stuart had clearly decided, sometime I think in 1660, before the Restoration, that it was time for him to try his hand at this gallant and yet accommodating instrument. Well, you can imagine, can't you, what it meant to have a royal guitarist at the centre of the Whitehall court. Every courtier, don't you think, has an interest in pleasing the king or the prince, whoever it may be. And as one commentator wrote in 1675, a courtier becomes ridiculous 
when he avoids the diversions of which the whole court approves. The hunt of the prince's smile is something that I think one could say all courtiers have always been involved in. Well, very soon the whole court did approve, and we're entering on a period now where the Qatar enjoyed immense favour, high prestige, probably the, the most favour and the most prestige it's really ever enjoyed in the British Isles. Well, it would be an exaggeration to claim, which I seem to be on the verge of saying, so let me pull back from that, that the king single-handedly created the guitar fashion. That would be, wouldn't it, the old kind of great men interpretation of history that we've all long ago learned to repudiate. After all, the guitar was well known in Oliver Cromwell's day, and indeed, when, as you remember, briefly we were a republic, and indeed before that. The first page of your handout, for example, shows a page from an issue of the Public Advisor for July 1657. This really is the most extraordinarily interesting newspaper, ladies and gentlemen, because it is one of the very earliest devoted principally to advertisements. And indeed, it seems to me that the whole history of how newspapers start has much to do with the pamphleteering and the polemic of the Civil War. That's a view I think that many historians hold, and it's a very interesting one, really. We are in at the birth, really, of the newspaper. And here are some adverts, and I'm particularly interested in the, the third one that begins, Any Gentleman, but the one above begins, Any Gentleman, too. But the one I'm after is the, the third, and it says, Any gentleman desirous to entertain a Frenchman into his service who hath very good skill in trimming and cutting of hair and playing on the guitar, may please to inquire for one Dennis Fromentine at the Green Man near Somerset House. This is in 1657. Fromentine, I would guess, is a, is a Huguenot. Perhaps he's a French Protestant. Well, the French barber, or hair cutter, had been an established stereotype of English comic and satirical writing for some time by now, since indeed at least the 16th century. It was one of the things that gave a reputation, gave the French a reputation, and I'm rather fond of this quote, for being, here it is, excellent fellows for toys, very perfect at toothpicks, beard brushes, and gentlewomen's fans. There's a distillation of a whole sense of France and the French in that, which I think the British have nurtured somewhere in the very heart of their soul for a long, long time. Well, now, the, that advertisement we've just been looking at would have led some to suppose, I think, that Fromentine was offering uh, two forms of continental elegance for the English gentleman's home, the guitar and French hairstyling. Others would perhaps prefer to think that he was peddling the trifling instrument and the even more trifling vanity of a nation famously ad addicted in the British mind of the period to such fripperies. But there were major new depart departures at the court of Charles II and things for which earlier uh, appearances of the guitar really don't prepare us. The light and easy guitar suited the infamously light and easy morality of Charles II's court. In fact, all the contemporary portraits of people playing guitars from this period show women, often with bedroom clothes and even more bedroom eyes. There's an allusion to some of these paintings, which were mostly done by Sir Peter Lely, in Byron's Don Juan where Byron refers to the paintings of women by Sir Peter Lely, whose garments suggest we may admire them freely. I've only recently read Byron with the care that he deserves, and I've found him an astonishing author who deserves his reputation. But that's by the by. But apart from that, apart from its appeal to the, uh, the sexuality of the court, the guitar is, after all, a light, insouciant, curvaceous sort of instrument, very prettified in some ways, as is very apparent in one of the instruments on the stage today, which you're very welcome to come and see afterwards. In addition to that, Charles did something really extraordinary, which is that he employed a great guitar virtuoso, indeed the greatest in Europe, Francesco Corbetta. And he did so from the moment he returned to England. And that means that some of the finest playing in Europe, if not the finest, from about 1660 to 1680, was to be heard not in Milan or in Paris, but in Whitehall. 
Now, you have a portrait of this master, Corbetta, um, a rather faded photocopy, I fear, on the first page of your handout, which shows him looking very, very splendid indeed with, a, with his wig, and uh, not indeed actually holding his guitar. This is very much a portrait of a gentleman who does not presume to be shown with the materials of his trade. Charles met this man, Corbetta, in the Low Countries, and Corbetta swiftly spotted with the kind of astuteness that professional musicians of that period must have had, swiftly spotted that this was a man whose fortunes were on the up. In other words, after a long period of that penury that I referred to earlier, Charles was being called back to the throne, Parliament had sent him a great deal of money, uh, local burghers and merchants were lending him money, this was someone whose fortunes were definitely taking a turn for the better. Better still... Corbetta must have thought to himself, well, if I go to London and it doesn't work, Charles has a sister in Paris, which of course he did, who was married to the, uh, to the brother of the king. And if that didn't work, Charles had a sister in the Low Countries, who was a, a, a core member of the court. So he found, Corbetta found himself, as it were, ringed by members of the House of Stuart in northwestern Europe. And he knew somehow it would, there'd, be, there'd be money, there'd be a living. It would work. Well, since I've got two players, of the specialist players of the Baroque or 17th century guitar here today, I've been unable to resist programming, so to speak, one of Corbetta's duets, which these days are, are very rarely played. And if you're hearing this for the first time, I can tell you so am I. Here is a prelude and a saraband from his collection La Guitare Royale of 1674.
Now, as it turned out, by employing Corbetta, Charles got more than a guitarist. I didn't know this until recently, and I, I pass it on. He also acquired an emissary, who, or emissary, who could travel between England and France without arousing suspicion. Now, the key figure in this design was his sister, Henriette Anne, the sister whom Charles especially loved and was the one in Paris. She'd been, if you remember your, your history, she was spirited away from England in 1646, as things were getting very violent, of course, and not long before the execution of her father, Charles I. She was spirited away when she was only two years old. And she was commonly called Henriette d'Angleterre in France, by, as by her admirer, the playwright Jean Racine. But she was essentially a Frenchwoman, bearing the title Madame by right of her marriage to the brother of the French king, Louis XIV. Now, while Corbetta was in London, his connections with her were sustained by the passage of his compositions abroad using the royal network of correspondence. In 1665, Charles sent us some new pieces by Corbetta and offered to send more. Now, you have the letter, or that part of it, in Charles's own hand, on the second page of the handout. If you go down to the second line, you can read, I have here sent you some lessons for the guitar, which I hope will please you. The Comte de Gramont did carry over with him others, which it may be you have. And as Francisco makes any more that pleases me, I will send them to you. I have no more to say at present, but that I am entirely yours, Charles. <clears throat> in 1664 or thereabouts, this sister, to whom this letter is addressed, summoned Corbetta to Paris. That's, the, that's a movement from the English court to the French court by Corbetta that we can document. And an archive, hitherto, I think unnoticed, but I, I found it in, again in Dorchester, in Dorset, where those royal archives are for the period up to 1660 and sometimes beyond, there is a, an archive called the Secret Service Account, and it is just what you think it is. Sometimes this account was used as a means to bypass the cumbersome processes of the exchequer and make a present to someone who'd served the king well, for example. But very often and predominantly, as the name suggests, it was used to pay informers or spies. And there's a note for the 22nd of March, 1663, that a sum of £100, is a great deal of money, isn't it, was set aside for a Signor Francisco. There really is only one candidate that I know of who that could possibly be, and that's our man Corbetta. It's going a little, it's pushing it a bit, perhaps, to say that he was a spy, but it would not be inaccurate, I think, or unfair to say that he's an informer. And this is something, ladies and gentlemen, that musicians have really often been used to do. You can understand that musicians often are of very, very poor status. They are really regarded as little better than transitory workers, so to speak. They don't, uh, a value is not placed on their work, anything like the value they place on it themselves. Uh, and they can travel freely from place to place and are regarded as of no real significance. So a musician made it, could make a very, very good spy indeed, all because that's the fundamental reason is musicians are constantly disregarded. My favourite, if I, if I can go a little bit back to the Tudor period, my favourite illustration of that is the composer John Taverner, who in the early 16th century was uh, briefly imprisoned because it was thought he possessed heretical material. But he was released and I quote, I think, the document accurately, because he's a musician and therefore ignorant. <laughs> well, for all these services, musical and perhaps political, Charles held his court guitarist and really in very high esteem. Now, Corbetta died in 1681, and his obituary was published in the French monthly journal of news, fashion and civility, the Mercure Galant. And it emphasizes and tells us a lot about the favor that Corbetta enjoyed. And since it was probably written by Corbetta's pupil, Rumi Medard, it's very likely to represent Corbetta's own version of events. So what does it say? Well, 
It says that he became a gentilhomme de la reine, a gentleman in the queen's retinue, and received a key to the royal bedchamber. Well, court records confirm that Corbetta was indeed made a groom of Queen Catherine's privy chamber. Not of Charles's, you notice, but of the Queen's, Catherine of Braganza. And while it was no very great honour to receive uh, the keys to the royal apartments, Charles later complained that there were far too many of them in circulation. He feared, he feared assassination, of course, all the time from Catholic plotters, so he really was anxious about the number of keys in circulation. But it was without precedent in England for a musician who played only the guitar, because if musicians are lowly, guitarists are often lowlier still, and yet here's one with a key to the royal apartments. The obituary also mentions the grant of a substantial pension and the gift of a portrait, enrichi de diamants, enriched with diamonds. Now, this is a portrait of Charles, presumably, rather than Charles giving Corbetta a portrait of himself. And it was probably the work of the miniaturist Samuel Cooper, who was much in demand in the 1660s. His workshop produced many uh, little miniatures of Charles, and one of the more modest examples appears on the second page of your handout. You can see it there. And I think very likely represents the kind of gift that Corbetta received. It was a mark of considerable favour to receive such a thing because it was a reminder, as it were, of the royal presence and could be worn round the neck. You can see that this is accompanied by uh, a, 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 a plate, both top and bottom, with holes that you could put a thread through so that you could wear it. And indeed, what I would like to emphasise to you is that this man is not part of the normal salaried staff of musicians. It's a special sort of relationship he has with the king where he's able to, uh, I think, gain access to the king's person quite easily, uh, in, often in intimate circumstances, in a way that the normal salaried musicians might not. Well, here's another sign of Corbetta's closeness to the king, and I'd be very interested to know afterwards what any of you who know more about these things than I do would make of it. If you look back at that mezzotint portrait, which is on page one, and I'm sorry it's poorly reproduced, there is underneath it... Um, the name of the artist, Henri Gascard, but it says that Gascard pinks it. Now, that, of course, means painted. And when you encounter that term on uh, a mezzotint, it means that it's been taken from a a, an oil portrait or an oil painting. For if the source were a drawing, you wouldn't say pinks it. I've checked this with the art historians. You wouldn't say pinks it. You'd say delineavit, designavit, or something like that. So what does this mean? Well, obviously, it means there was once a portrait in oils of Corbetta, a considerably more prestigious and costly medium than mezzotint. More than once I've asked you to look in your, in your collections of books. Uh, now I'm asking you to look in your collections of portraits, because this picture probably survives somewhere, this oil painting of, of Corbetta, but nobody has ever seen it that I know of. Better still, if you make a list of the works, the mezzotints by Gascard, that are said to be based on oil portraits, you find that our guitarist is in really very exalted company including several royal mistresses, for example, including the one we've all heard of, Nell Gwynne, uh, several of the king's illegitimate sons. So he's in extremely good company. I really wish this portrait could be found. Well, although Corbetta naturally dominates any account of the guitar at the Restoration Court, and we're not quite done with him yet, though nearly, it's worth remembering, I think, that there is anonymous music from the period which more closely reflects the kind of things that people like you and me would hope to play. That's why it's not professionals at the top of our game, but interested amateurs. Well, here is one of the best-known melodies of the period as it appears in the guitar book of a young girl named Elizabeth Cromwell. She played from this book, and incidentally, she scribbled all over it, Elizabeth Cromwell, her book, Elizabeth Cromwell, her book, Elizabeth Cromwell, Elizabeth Cromwell. She was really very determined that she should know whose book this is. And she was playing from it in the early 1680s. And this is a melody called Sani, S-A-N-Y, which is the word Sawney, which was the name given often in Restoration drama to a, a Scottish comic figure. And it seems to me... Again, I'd like your view afterwards. It seems to me this has a definite Scottish timbre to it, this piece. 
Sani. Now, coming back to the master, Corbetta, the two greatest monuments to his work are both entitled La Guitare Royale, and they were published in 1671, and that one was dedicated to Charles II as uh, King of Great Britain, and 1674, and that was dedicated to the French King. Both were published in Paris, by the way, though Corbetta says in a wonderfully vain and self-important introduction that he had some of the plates initial plates for the British version made while he was in London. On page three of your handout, you've got a page of the book, or part of the, oh, yes, you've got the full page of the book for Charles, the 1671 Guitar Royale. It's very small, but nonetheless, it will make the point. You can see that th this notation is very dense and detailed. The five, uh, let me explain once more, though I have explained it before, the five lines are not of course staff lines, as you're familiar with in piano music for example. It is a, it is a diagram of the five strings of the guitar. The letters that you see indicate which fret to use. The note values are written above the staff with the usual crotchets and quavers, as we would now call them, or within the staff, if it's indicating a strum. And the direction of the tail of the note within the staff tells you whether to strum down or to strum up. And there are many other little nuances and details that the notation conveys. It is a testament to an intricate and proud art. And as I say, in the introduction, Corbetta seems very anxious that we should play his music just as he wishes it to be played, but very determined we should understand that the only person who can play it as it should be played is him. If you look at the, the third page under the uh, music, you'll see the titles of some of the works in the British volume that mention members of the court, and they'll give you some idea of just how closely integrated this man is into the royal circles. Let's look what we've got. Well, we start with the Allemande du Roi et sa suite. So the Allemande for the king and, its, and what comes next uh, and its following section. Then we've got an Allemande uh, in F ut fa. That's a way of referring to what we'd now call key, a key, of his highness, the Duke of York. That, of course, is Charles's brother, who's going to go on to become James II, though his reign won't last very long, as you know, and will come to an end in what used to be called the glorious or bloodless revolution of 1688. Then we've got the Allemande for the death of the Duke of Gloucester. We've got a gavotte uh, much liked by the Duke of Monmouth, who you remember was Charles's illegitimate son, who, whose life ended very badly on the scaffold after the Monmouth Rebellion. An extremely handsome man to judge by the portraits of him that survive, and very charming, a great dancer. Someone, I think, who was regarded as a, as a great loss, but he had his ambitions, and he paid the price for them. 
then an allemande on the imprisonment of the Duke of Buckingham, and finally a saraband la commange, and I wondered about that one for a long time, until I did really what I'm sure all of you, with more wit than I have, would have thought of straight away. I thought, what's the name of the French ambassador at the time? And it's Comage. So, in fact, it's dedicated to the French ambassador. Now, we have an account of Corbetta at court, which was written by one who was actually there, though he recorded his memories long after the event. Let me read it to you, because it tells us a lot. And I'm reading, in fact, from the, I mean, the original in French was published um, in the early 18th century. And this is a translation that was made into English in the 1730s. It's, on the whole, pretty faithful. There was at court a certain Italian, famous for the guitar. He had a genius for music and was the only man who could make anything of the guitar. Notice we're in the 1730s, the fashion for the guitar has receded somewhat. He was the only man who could get any music out of it. But his composition was so graceful and so tender that he would have given a harmony to the most stubborn of all instruments. The truth is, nothing was more difficult than to imitate his way of playing. But the king's relish for his compositions had given that instrument such a vogue that everybody played on it, well or ill. And one was as sure to see a guitar on the dressing tables of the ladies, or the fair, as either rouge or patches. Patches, you remember, were the small black pieces of fabric used to cover imperfections in the skin. The Duke of York, so that's the future James II, played on it tolerably well. And the Earl of Arran played like Francisco himself. I don't believe a word of that. But nonetheless, it's, it's impressive that a courtier could have that kind of reputation. This Francisco had lately composed a saraband which either charmed or made mad everybody. For all the guitar mongers at court fell to practicing it, and God knows what a universal thumbing and humming and scraping there was. Well, that does tell us rather a lot, doesn't it? The, the, the king's relish for his compositions had given that instrument such a vogue. Maybe there's something in the great man theory of why things happened after all. And notice the link with sexuality. You're as likely to see it on a woman's dressing table as, those, uh, as, those, uh, as that other engine, so to speak, of their attractions, their rouge and their patches. And then you've got a courtier who had the reputation of playing as well as Francesca. And then you have the guitar mongers in the original French, the guitarerie, the guitar mongers at the court. There clearly is a, you know, there's a group of people who are all doing this and vying with one another. And the reference there, of course, is to the strumming that you've heard already, the uh, scraping, or in the French original, the raclerie, which means a, a grating or raking movement. Well, thanks to Samuel Pepys, uh, really this man is unavoidable, really, I think, with whom I began. His, his diary is, after all, the greatest social record of the 1660s in England. There is really nothing else that gives you this intimate detail of life at the, uh, social life at the court. In 1667, Pe Pepys went to St. James's Palace, where, of course, we can still go, it's still there, to conduct business with the Duke of York, who was the Lord High Admiral, and Pepys was working for the Navy. Now, when such meetings were held very early in the day, Pepys would often find the Duke still in his pyjamas, or his nightclothes, in which he appeared, says Pepys, a very plain man. Or, he might, Pepys might keep uh, the Duke company while he was being dressed. And on this particular occasion, Pepys finished his business, came out for the Duke's dressing room, and found Corbetta tuning his guitar. And Corbetta played for him, and Pepys was impressed with Corbetta's technique, but not much impressed with the guitar, though he was to change his view. And if you come in May, you'll find out what happened. Well, though very brief, that report is rich in implications, I think, for Corbetta's position in the domestic routine of the palace. Pepys found him waiting with his guitar with Monsieur Dupuis, who was the yeoman of the robes to the Duke. And the episode took place early enough in the morning to be Pepys's first appointment of the day after rising. 
So York, I think, was receiving peeps before he was actually dressed. So Corbetta would have been preparing to play in the bedchamber while the Duke was garbed by his yeoman of the robes for the day's business. Well, while in exile, Charles II had observed the formal levee and coucher, the, the rising up and the going to bed of Louis XIV. And although it seems that Charles didn't actually institute a formal getting up and going to bed on the French model, his first waking hours could be a populous uh, affair in the bedchamber. You appreciate, I'm sure, that nobody in this period has what you and I would call a private life. And the higher you go up the social, social scale, the less of it they have. So Charles refashioned his main bedroom uh, after the French manner. And at both the beginning and the end of the day, he had the company of those whom he wished to invite, together with such people as the pages of the back stairs, thought judicious to admit, coming off the Thames, up the back stairs into Westminster Palace. And I think it's very likely that Corbetta was summoned to play on occasions like that, so picture the scene. The king is rising and about to be dressed by his groom of the robes. There are perhaps 40 or 50 people present, many of them high courtiers. There's probably a royal mistress, though Charles has so many, I don't feel obliged to just choose which one it is. And Corbetta is present. And as they converse, and as they talk, and as the king rises, he plays in one corner as background music. And I'm going to ask Taro to play the kind of thing that would have been heard on such an occasion. And you will see that there's perhaps just a moment in this piece where Corbetta is effectively saying, stop talking, listen.
Now, as we come to a close, or the close is in view, I'd just like to spend a moment looking more closely at a court amateur. And here I hope you share my taste for grubbing in the archives, because that's what we're going to do. The player we're after is Anna Scott, Duchess of Buccleuch, who married the King's illegitimate son, James Duke of Monmouth, in 1663, when she was barely a teenager. Now, the National Records of Scotland hold accounts of her London expenditure for various months between December 1662 and May 1663, when efforts were being made, as you can imagine, to prepare her for life at the Whitehall Court. She was then living with her mother on the Strand, attending plays to give her some conversation, of course, as well as to divert her. And she was visiting the London parks and scouring the shops to buy clothes, cosmetics, and a great deal of haberdashery. Well, the accounts for those months contain various payments for lessons on the guitar, for strings, and for the purchase of an instrument. And these are on pages three, crossing to four, of your handout. So we've got a payment to the guitar master, December 1662, of four pounds, quite a lot of lessons there. Then two pounds for a Roman guitar, as a payment to a guitar master for a month, another guitar master, and guitar strings. So it goes on. In fact, there's a very extensive list of payments. That's just a, a spoonful of what could have been a much larger body of material. Well, by the summer of 1664, she was installed in a house in Chiswick because it was thought she was too young to live with her husband. But as you trace her life, you find that various account books show that she was still playing the guitar in 1668, so quite some time later, and they give the name of her teacher, who was Mr. Jean Vier. Now, that little detail came out of the archives in Dorchester. So you get bits of the story in Scotland, and you get bits of the story in Dorchester. You get to see a lot of the world as a researcher. As I'm, but I'm sure you all know that. I know there are, plenty of author, there are plenty of authors in the room. I met one just before I came on. Now, Mrs. Jean Vier was one of the most prominent guitarists of the Restoration period. But since the guitar could function so well within what you might call its own musical ecology, his name is unknown to any musical source as far as I know, and indeed to any musical history, Monsieur Jean Vier. At the top of page four, you have a brief passage about him from Edward Chamberlain's really remarkable work, which I commend to you, called uh, The Present State of England. It's, and this is from the 1683 edition. But the fine, easy guitar, whose performance is soon gained, at least after the brushing way, he means strumming, of course, hath at this present overtopped the nobler lute. Nor is it to be denied but that after some good work may be made of the guitar by such of Sir Francesco Corbetto, who's become a knight for some reason, Monsieur Jean Villiers, and the like. Well, a treasury document shows that Anna was still playing the guitar nearly 15 years after her first recorded lessons. And that's also in your hand, and I think it's the very last thing you have. And incidentally, the fine, easy guitar, Chamberlain says. Of all the documents I've ever seen about the history of the guitar, I can't think of a single phrase that captures better what, in a way, all these lectures have been about the fine, easy guitar. One doesn't normally think that anything that's easy is fine, but it has a sophistication to it, an insouciance, and an accommodating quality. The fine, easy guitar. It's really all there. I think. Anyway, see what this Treasury Minute says, which I, I read in the, the National Archives. Um, the, it's signed by Danby as a Lord High Treasurer and is addressed to the Controller of Customs. After, and then there's a, a, my hearty recommendations, it's a standard formula. Whereas there are remaining in the custom warehouse at Dover one dozen pair of gloves. 18 dozen of combs and a guitar directed to his or her grace, the Duke or Duchess of Monmouth. These are to pray and desire you to cause the same to be delivered, custom free, for which, etc., etc. Then another formulaic ending, 29th of March, 1677. Well, now as we end, it seems the right moment, I think, to hear more of the music that amateurs, gifted amateurs, could and would play. So we're going to end with two pieces. 
The first is an air for guitar that appears in a manuscript in the Bodleian Library that's never been published as far as I know. And as far as I'm aware, this piece has not been performed in public well, since the 17th century, apart from when I try and play it at home. <laughs> Which doesn't really count, I have to tell you. And then we're going to end, as all good shows do, by getting all our musicians on stage together. And it's a piece from The False Consonances of Music, by Nicola Mateis, which is probably the most sophisticated book on the guitar that was ever published in the 17th century, and I'm delighted to say it was published in London and twice. The first time, purely in Italian. There was obviously a, a coterie of people who could read Italian very, very well and wanted to read about the guitar in Italian, and the second time in a mixture of Italian and English. So first, an air from the Oxford Manuscript, and then an aria from Nicola Mateis, The False Consonances of Music, published in London in 1682. Thank you.